0: I'm imagining. Let us both go there, dear Lister. A, a medieval church. It's a it's a construction. Look at that. It's a construction designed to create a sense of awe, and perhaps with equal importance to to carry sound. Imagine that the sung liturgy of a solo priest, a, a choir, filling this this vaulted space of wood and stone. Because of course, before the microphone, before amplification, all there was was the the acoustics of the space. All our built environments they they shape sound, but but how often how often do we pay close attention to that building? It affects our experience of sound, and and maybe maybe sound affects our experience of the building. There's a lot to explore here, in, 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 particularly in this relationship between architecture and acoustics. And that is a relationship with an intriguing history. Um, Joseph L. Clarke has a, a keen interest in this and in acoustic space broadly. He's the author of Echoes, Chambers, Architecture and the Idea of Acoustic Space. Joseph, Welcome. Good to be with you, Jonathan. I I mentioned a choir in our our mythical medieval church. And that that perhaps goes to your your origin story in this space. You were, of course, a chorister. Uh, did did that form
1: ideas for you? I, I was. I I grew up in the Midwestern United States where I sang in choirs at church and at school. And that that really did teach me how much acoustics matter when you're singing in a room that is designed to support the, the voice or to support music, the architecture actually works with you. It helps you to hear other musicians, and um, it helps the listeners to hear you. And by the way, this is why we all sound so good when we sing in the shower. <laughs> well, what are the qualities of, of the
0: shower that, that, that create that? And, and is that something which people then
1: attempt to, to, to reproduce in other larger structures? You know, to be able to sing well, it's important to be able to hear yourself. And it might seem like obvious that when we make a sound, we can hear ourselves. Um, but it's not necessarily always the case. And when you're in the shower in a, in a very contained, compressed environment, you can hear yourself very well. So I don't know, maybe for those of us like, like me who, um, who can, be a little, <laughs> can be a little narcissistic, or at least we like to hear the sound of our own voice, um, we, uh, we always have that particular temptation architects can try to evoke and to, um, uh, to augment in their buildings. And so architects have for hundreds of years been, been really consciously, deliberately thinking about how uh, a building, uh, how the surfaces of a building can be shaped to um, facilitate and encourage the reflection of sound in particular ways. I mentioned that, of course, there are examples of of ancient buildings that, mm. that seem to be designed with some awareness of their acoustic properties, but it was really starting in the early modern period, so um, thinking of the 17th century, um, the early Enlightenment, um, that architects began to, in a, in a very conscious, intentional way, study the properties of um, acoustic spaces and to develop acoustic series that could be tested and could be implemented in a more systematic way
0: was that a, was that a development that came with, with a, a, a better understanding scientific understanding of the properties of sound
1: itself it, yes it did and it also related to the study of light um, if we think about some of the great scientific discoveries of the 17th century the telescope was allowing for new astronomical uh, understandings of the cosmos. The microscope was allowing us to see things um, too small for the naked eye. And when we could begin to think about sound as behaving in an analogous way to light, mm. in other words, sound waves um, bounce and reflect off surfaces, um, not in exactly the same way as light, of course, but but even to be able to make that analogy, um, uh, and you could think about a building even as a kind of lens for focusing sound. Uh, in to produce the kind of desired sound effects, um, that really allowed a kind of of uh, paradigm shift, a kind of step forward in the design of buildings for acoustics.
0: How how do the two things begin to reconcile? I mean, architecture it's a it's a visual science. D- buildings are drawn. Um, and, the, you know, there is a, a long history in this, but to then integrate the notion of sound within that, to integrate the notion of sound within that, that methodology, was that an easy,
1: an easy adaptation? Well, it wasn't an easy adaptation. The analogy between sound and light was a useful one in a way in, in prompting people to at least have a kind of conceptual model for understanding how sound behaves in space. But it can also uh, get you into trouble because, of course, sound isn't the same as light. Um, Sound propagates uh, through a medium like air. Uh, Light doesn't require air to propagate. Um, Light, of course, moves much, much more quickly than sound. Um, And and so for these and various other reasons, we we can often get into trouble when we just assume that sound always behaves like light. Architects and designers are typically trained, as you alluded to, um, are trained to think visually. And, you know, we learned, I went to architecture school and I learned to design by drawing, by sketching, by looking at buildings. um, And so learning to think visually. And it can be much harder to think. I mean, we all understand that sound is an important dimension of the physical environment. But to really get that kind of intuitive understanding of how sound behaves in space is, is not easy. It's it's challenging, and it defies some of our assumptions about how we imagine the spaces around us will be experienced by people.
0: Now, uh, interesting, staying in, in the 17th century, um, there's a certain chaplain who who did some interesting work. Tell us about this case study.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, this was a um, philosopher, and you might call him a scientist, um, Athanasius Kircher, he was the first person to write an extensive illustrated book on acoustics. And this book had a huge influence on later architects and scientists. And it's, it's kind of part scientific theory and part, uh, compilation of sonic curiosities that Kirker had encountered. Hmm. This was a period when, uh, these scientific paradigms were in transition like i mentioned and so kierkegaard had one foot in the new um scientific universe that was being elaborated by men like galileo and the other foot in an older medieval cosmos he was a, uh, a a churchman he was a priest um as you mentioned um and he still thought about musical harmony as a kind of manifestation of the divine mathematical order of the cosmos but more than anything else, he was really compelled by the kind of weird and, and wondrous sound effects that he encountered in the world. And he tried to explain them, but in spite of all of his theories, they, they often remained confounding. So, for example, um, in his book, he describes how you could um, construct a statue and the room for the statue in such a way that the statue would appear to talk and would be <laughs> a kind of wonderful curiosity that you could amuse your friends And when you read this passage, you might think, well, this is a really far-fetched idea. But Kierkegaard actually lived in Rome, and he was the curator of a small museum of of curiosity, kind of cabinet of curiosities. And the final culminating exhibit in his museum was, in fact, a talking statue. So, this is something that he actually built. Another example that he gives is um, uh, he's advising... Jesuits, he was a a Jesuit, um, and he's advising Jesuits who might be in remote missions in distant parts of the world that if they have only a very small choir in their church, um, they might need to uh, augment the sound of the singers. And so he suggests that it might be possible to build a chapel in such a way that a couple of singers um, could sing and their voices would reflect and would echo back into the space in such a way that they would sound like additional people singing in counterpoint <laughs> I,
0: can't, I can't imagine how that could possibly go wrong <laughs> n- n- no indeed no indeed <laughs> yeah. which which takes us to, I mean there's an invidious problem in this which we can have uh, uh, you know a, a, a sense of how a building is going to work and we can have theory around that how it will work acoustically but this is only really tested after the construction when we when we when we see the thing in in reality
1: it's so true and even even today even in the 21st century acoustic engineering remains part science and part art and you know engineers will work with very sophisticated computer models and calculations and yet there's always that moment on, on opening night of the, of the new uh, concert hall or in a new space where you, you just aren't sure how it's going to sound. And so um, even in the most highly engineered you know, opera houses and, and performance spaces, um, there's almost always a certain amount of fine-tuning and adjustment that has to go on after it's opened.
0: Well, I'm thinking even, even a building as celebrated as the Sydney Opera House had, had its issues of of that sort recently remedied but yeah it's the celebrated structure is no guarantee of that internal
1: performance it's it's no guarantee even in our own time and you can imagine in the 17th century Hmm. how these you know these theories were only just first beginning to be proposed and many of them didn't work exactly as advertised the first time but this is the way science works right it you know we we learn from our mistakes and you improve the theory and then you get you do a little better the next time. Tell us about the curious case of Pierre Pot. Pierre Pot was an architect in 18th century France, and in in this period, theater was at the at the center of public life. It was a it was a cultural institution. It was a political institution, and Pierre Pot uh, developed a um, model of design of an a kind of ideal theater. Um, he was trained as an architect. He didn't actually. Um, practice. He didn't design real buildings, but he published books of architectural theory. And um, he was the first architect to write an extensive theory of acoustics for theater design. His model of a theater was an elliptical space, an, an auditorium, a sort of oval uh, shape. And the idea of this form was that it was supposed to take all of the sounds produced by an actor or a musician on the stage. They would reflect off the curved walls, and then they would arrive at the other focus of the ellipse, um, somewhere in the auditorium where the audience was seated. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> this was how the building was supposed to work. Now, the, pro- the problem that emerged with this theory, and it was, it was tested um, in a high-profile way in a big uh, theater that was built around the turn of the 19th century in Berlin, the problem with it is, of course, that you can't have the entire audience um, sitting in this one point in the auditorium. <laughs> yes. And so, what um, what emerged from this experience? It was really a scandal when the theater opened, and um, nobody could hear the performance. Um, and so, what emerged from all this is that actually um, focusing sound into um, a single point is exactly the wrong thing to do if you're designing a theater. What you actually want is to scatter the sound as widely as possible. And so this this, propo- this uh, prompted another paradigm shift and the architects of the next generation studied the problems with this building and develop new theories based on that.
0: Of course, the the intersection of of acoustics and architecture is not always about the desirability of of amplification. Often the inverse is is a desired quality. I'm thinking of a a restaurant, perhaps, or a a train station, places where you want a a more muted
1: uh, audio environment. That's true. Um, That's so true, and acoustics matters in... Restaurants, like you say, in hospitals. There's today. There's a lot of research around sound in healthcare, and um, are there ways to design uh, spaces so that the the sound will promote healing? So, Hmm. yes, this is. I mean, this is an interesting. Almost any building type seems to have a particular kind of acoustic profile that is especially desirable.
0: Joseph, it's fascinating work. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Joseph L. Clarke, he's Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of Toronto and author of Echoes Chambers, Architecture and the Idea of Acoustic Space. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your
1: smart speaker to play ABC R-N.